As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 204. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks, as always, to tuning into the show. Hey, if you like this show, if you're a fan of the show, if you like this content, all this free content where we're talking to top thought leaders all around the globe, take the time to go to Stitcher and iTunes and leave a rating and review. Subscribe to the podcast so it's available on your mobile device. It does so much for our visibility. I can't tell you how much it helps uh, to keep us front and center in this world of ever-increasing podcasts. There's a lot of great ones out there, but I'd like to stay front and center to all those new podcast listeners out there to keep Dose and Leadership visible in iTunes and Stitcher. So take the time, leave a rating and review, and subscribe. It would do so much for the show. Thank you so much for being a fan of the show. Got a great guest today, William Urey. He is a co-founder of Harvard's Program on Negotiation and is one of the world's leading experts on negotiation and mediation. I mean, he has done it all. For the past 35 years, he's been a negotiation advisor and mediator in conflicts ranging from the Kentucky Wildcat coal mine strikes to the ethnic wars in the Middle East, the Balkans, the former Soviet Union. He's partnered with former President Jimmy Carter and co-founded the International Negotiation Network, which is a non-governmental body that seeks to end civil wars around the world. He's helped end the civil war in Indonesia. He's assisted, assisted in preventing one in Venezuela. My goodness, he's just, he's passionate about this whole negotiation process. And is author of a bunch of books, too. His latest one is Getting Yes to Yourself, which just came out in January. It's a sequel to his world's best-selling book on negotiation called Getting to Yes. He's also authored The Power of Positive No, Getting Past No, and also The Third Side. This We talk a lot about his latest book, of course, Getting to Yes with Yourself. And in this book, the whole premise is that the greatest obstacle to really successful agreements and satisfying relationships isn't the other side or the other person. The biggest obstacle is actually ourself. Because it is our natural tendency, and we've talked about this on the show a lot, to react in ways that don't serve our true interest. But as he points out in this book and in this conversation, um, the obstacle can also become our biggest opportunity. He talks about six proven steps to get what you really want in life and in negotiations and effective tips and strategies, and he hits some of these in this conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Again, here's William Urey on Dose of Leadership. 
Well, William, so glad to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. It's a real pleasure to be with you today, uh, Richard, and to talk about such an important subject. Yeah. You know, I love the book that's just coming out, or just came out in January, Getting Yes to With Yourself. Tell us a little more about that and yourself and the genesis of the book. Sure. Well, I uh, about over 30 years ago, I had the privilege of working on a book with Roger Fisher called Getting to Yes. Yeah. And uh, that book, that book was a negotiation book, but it's also a, a leadership book. It's about how to influence people, but it's it's about how to reach agreements that are good for both sides. And it came out at a time when you know a lot of the books, kind of the popular books on the bestseller list, were like uh, looking out for number one and right. winning by intimidation. And so, getting the yes, you know, struck a different note. It it kind of promoted a, a, a popular mindset that has become known as kind of win-win. You know, the the idea that that we can we can work together for mutual gain, expand the pie, so there's more for everybody. And uh, and over the last thirty years, three decades or more, I've had the privilege of serving as a helping people negotiate or mediate. I've been a mediator in situations ranging from labor strikes to boardroom battles, and from family feuds to civil wars around the world. And I've kind of specialized in dealing with difficult people in difficult situations because the question I got most often was. How do you get to yes with people who don't want to get to yes? <laughs> You're right. And uh, anyway, over the years, it slowly dawned on me, Richard, that uh, maybe the most difficult person we ever have to deal with, the person who is the biggest obstacle to us getting what we truly want in life and, and in negotiation is actually not the person yeah, right. on the other side of the table, it's as us, difficult yeah. as they can be. It's the person on this side of the table, <laughs> right. uh, namely us. So true. Uh, and so that's that's really uh, the the genesis of this book, uh, getting to yes with yourself. You know, it, it's so true, and, and the, probably one of the biggest kind of lessons I've learned, or kind of yeah, maybe clarities or epiphanies, whatever you want to call them, from doing this show is, man, we do sabotage ourselves quite a bit, and especially when you talk to entrepreneurs and anybody that's trying to do something of significance. So we've got these dreams, but it's usually not the external that stops us; it's ourselves. Isn't that true? It's that that's been my my experience entirely. It's like, you know, we human beings. Uh, I'm, I'm originally actually an anthropologist by training, and uh, so I study human beings. And you know, human beings we're, we we tend to be kind of reaction machines. And uh, as the old saying goes, "When angry, you will make the best speech you will ever regret." <laughs> right. And uh, you know that happens. We we do sabotage ourselves. We get in our own way. And so uh, so I I set about to kind of ask the question, could we take the same kind of negotiating principles, getting the yes principles that work well in influencing others, can we use them to actually influence ourselves first so that we can you know, get what we need, but also it helps set us up for success in dealing with others. Yeah, so what is the probably the biggest saboteur, I guess, of us? Is, is it fear? Is it uh, limiting beliefs? Is it doubt? What do you think stands out the most? What stops most of us? Yeah, well, I would say it's in that area. I would say, yeah, I would say it's our, we react out of, yeah, I would say, if I had to say, pick one, I would say it's fear. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are many of them, obviously. Sure. And uh, uh, fear, and then limiting beliefs, I'd say, is is very much, uh, well, limiting beliefs are often based on fear. Sure. Uh, and uh, so that's that's what I look at in my book is like, okay, so 
Um, because to me, the foundation of successful negotiation is an ability to, I like to use the metaphor of going to the balcony. Okay. It's, almost okay. like, um, it's almost like you're negotiating on a stage with someone, be it your business partner or your spouse or your colleague or your client. And part of your mind goes to a mental and emotional balcony overlooking that stage. It's a place of perspective. It's a place of calm. It's a place of self-control. It's a place where you can keep your eyes on the prize. And to me, that's, that's, where you can, that's where you can actually view. You can see your limiting beliefs. You can see the fear. You can see the anger. You can see the things that, that get in our own way. I like that perspective. It's so true. I think... Um what, one thing that's always confused me about kind of the limiting beliefs or the, the sabotaging of success is if someone – I've seen so many times in people that I've coached or talked to, and I've seen it in myself in my own life, where I've got so close to the either the finish line or the goal, and then we do something or I've done something that, that kind of stopped it. Is that – and I, and I try to think about that. It wasn't so much – was it the fear of success or maybe that we don't um, – I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but is it is it almost like we feel like we don't belong in that space or we don't deserve that space, I guess. Does that make sense? I, you know, the more I think about it, um, what's underneath it, what's underneath the, the, you know, the fear, the limiting beliefs, I would say, I mean, I would characterize that as a no. I mean, basically, it's a no to ourselves. Right. And, and the question is, how can we get past that no to a yes to ourselves, you know, to our deepest, truest, authentic self, to our, our deepest needs? And, and that's, that's really it. I mean, how, do, how, do we, how can we see that no? Because a lot of us are even, you know, we're surprised by that. We don't know that, you know, we think, wait a minute, I don't have, you know, because on the surface of it, it seems like this is what we want. Right. But then underneath it, there's part of us that's, that's blocking us, partly because, as you say, Richard, uh, maybe we feel we don't deserve it. Uh, maybe we're kind of repeating an, an old negative pattern that, you know, that maybe we learned in childhood where we heard a voice of an adult saying, you can't do that, you'll be a failure, and that keeps on repeating itself to us. So what, so what do we do? What are, you, your book has six steps that uh, helps us to kind of uh, get the strategies and or, or what we really want out of life. What are those steps? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the paramount foundation is to be able to go to the balcony. But as people tell me often, and as I see myself in my own experience, too, is we have a tendency to fall off that balcony <laughs> right. or not to be able to, we can't stay on there. And uh, so the first step to me is um, is all, is is the is the ability I, I call I mean again taking a negotiating principle, it's to put yourself in your own shoes. Mm. It's, it sounds funny because after all we're not already in our own shoes, but but truly how many of us really understand ourselves? Yes, and, you know, see for example uh, our limiting beliefs, see that no, uh, understand our fears, and if we can, you know. In, in negotiation, when people ask me, you know, what's the most important principle for a negotiator if you had to pick just one, you know, I, the one I usually pick is to put yourself in the other person's shoes. In other words, if you're trying to influence that person, you're trying to change their mind, you need to know where their mind is. You need to be able to listen to that person, be it your client or your, or your boss or your partner. But the, uh, so the, the thing is, is that I found it's, it's very hard for people to put themselves in the other person's shoes, particularly under stress, particularly under conditions of conflict. 
And the missing step, the kind of the psychological antecedent is, is because we have all these thoughts and emotions and beliefs that are in our head already, and we, there's no space to be able to take in the other person. And so yeah. that's where we need to kind of listen to ourselves first, put ourselves in our own shoes, figure out what we truly want, uh, do that own kind of inner work so that we can then be available to be at our best when it comes to dealing with others. Yeah, of course, it makes sense. And knowing yourself and always seeking self-improvement, I guess it seems so intuitive, but you're you're so right. You said that how many of us truly know who we really are? And, and uh, I think that's a large part of, I mean, it's a lifelong process. It never, stop, it never stops, but I think it starts with an intentionality of step of really trying to figure out who we are. That's it. And all, these things are, these are, um, these are in some sense, these are timeless principles and sure. you're, and you're right. They're things that we have to, they're not just things you do once and you get away. Okay. <laughs> right. Check, like, okay, check, check that box. The box I put myself yeah. in my shoes. I know myself. <laughs> right. Okay, fine. Right. Uh, no, th- these are kind of lifelong practices and the, 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 the great opportunity we have is that uh, we get lots of chance to practice because That's we're so we're with ourselves, you know, twenty four seven. So we have a chance to observe ourselves all the time, right. and day by day, we can make steady progress. All right. So what's the second one? The second one, actually. Well, let me give you an example. Actually, the first one, if I might, just because sure. it'll lead me into the second one, which is uh, I was working with a leader, a very well known, uh, one of the best known business leaders in Latin America. Uh, last year, uh, I was asked by his daughter, who was also a business leader, to help her father, who was enmeshed in a terrible uh, dispute with his former business partner over the control of Brazil's largest retailer. And uh, this dispute had gone on for two and a half years, arbitrations, lawsuits, it was all over the media. I think the, the Financial Times called it perhaps the largest... Uh, cross-continental boardroom showdown in recent history. And, and anyway, when I sat down with, uh, with my client, who actually became a friend, Abilio, uh, in his home, you know, I, I listened to him. And, I, and, and he, like many of us, uh, you know, you may think you know what you want, but I don't think I, I got the sense he really didn't know what he truly wanted. Did he want to fight? Because, you know, he was he was uh, slated to be chairman of the company for another eight years until he was 84. And is this really how he wanted to spend the rest of his life? And so, or did he want to find some kind of way out of this situation? And I think he was a little bit divided. And then when I asked him what, what you want, he said, well, he gave me a list of things. He said, you know, I want, uh, I want the stock at a certain price. I want the elimination of the non-compete clause. I want some real estate. He gave me a list. But as I listened to him, I, I tried to probe. I said, but Abilio, you know, you're a man who seems to have everything. You know, you're, you're, you're a billionaire. What, what, what do you really want? What do you most want? And he paused. He thought about it for a moment. And finally he said, you know what I want? I want freedom. I want my freedom. And I said, that's it. So what do you want the freedom for? He said, well, I want the freedom to be able to, you know, realize my business dreams and to be able to spend time with my family, which is the most important thing in my life. So, so then I asked him, uh, and this leads to the second point in the method is, Abilio, who can give you what you most want? Is it really your adversary in this dispute? Is, are you really his hostage? I mean, he, only he can give you freedom. 
Or to some extent, can you give yourself that freedom independently of whatever he does? And as he thought about it, he realized, yeah, <laughs> it's me. Right. And so once that, – that's what I – uh, the second step, in, which is I call, I, I use again a negotiation term, which I'll explain in a moment, called developing your inner batna. But it's your your inner ability to take care of yourself, to meet your own needs, independent of the other side. Yeah. And once Abelio realized that, he said, "Okay, well, fine." And then he became chairman of another company. He uh, he uh, took a vacation with his family. He started doing other business deals and psychologically that freedom so that he wasn't so dependent on the other side for a resolution and paradoxically that made it a lot easier for us to reach an agreement and in four short days we took a two and a half you know year dispute and were able to reach an agreement that wasn't just a kind of a grudging compromise but Abelio said I got everything I wanted and but most important I got my life back all because he realized that he was in far much control of of his ultimate uh, ultimate want and need. He wasn't looking. He was looking externally to get the freedom, but once he realized it was all him, he kind of released everything. That that's it, Richard. And so he by getting D, that's what I call getting to yes with yourself. He got to yes with himself. <laughs> right. and it was a lot easier to get to yes with 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 his uh, opponent in this in this in this uh, in this conflict. So. To me, that's that's the key: is the ability. You know, in negotiation, negotiation, you have to ask yourself: you know, what do you most want, and then where's the power going to come from to give you what you most want? And in negotiation, one of the terms we use for power is what we call what Roger Fisher and I a term we coined in getting to yes called your BATNA, which is stands for your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. It's your best course of action. If for some reason you're not able to reach agreement, if you're not able to reach agreement with one customer, maybe there's another customer with one supplier, maybe there's another supplier. Having knowing your BATNA or having a good BATNA gives you confidence and power. But also what I've realized over time is you know, a lot of people, we don't think that way. And I think the reason we don't think that, that way is there's a we forget our inner BATNA, which is our ability inside of ourselves to take care of ourselves, which then allows us to to exercise our our full our full power our full authority in 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 in, in life. We're talking with William Urey. He's got a new book out there, and uh, he's all about his his background is mediation. He's also um, the book is sorry about it. the book is called Getting Yes to Your Getting to Yes with Yourself. But you've also written some books: The Power of a Positive No, Getting Past No, and The Third Side. Tell me a little bit more about some of the steps, and I want to get into some of the other initiatives, but what, quickly, what are some of the other steps that you have in uh, getting to yes? With sure. Well, the next step actually has to do with what you were calling limiting beliefs, and it's uh, one of the great powers in negotiations, the ability to reframe. You know, asking yourself, where, where does satisfaction really come from? Because what I've noticed in, in negotiation, the key thing is to be able to change the game from a kind of a win-lose contest where to a lose uh, or lose 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 outcome with a you know loss also for the family or for the workplace or for the society but uh, but it's hard for people to do and because I think we have a limiting belief which is uh, a mindset of scarcity like there yeah. you know this is a dog eat dog world uh, you know the universe is very unfriendly and there's not enough to go around and I need to get mine right and and, uh, and so I think 
you know, by reframing is, is, is kind of changing the way you view life. And it's just kind of question that belief and say, is that really true? And do I actually have a choice? Can I choose to see instead, you know, life is being, you know, even when there's adversity, life is essentially being on my side, that actually there's not just essential scarcity, but there's, but I can actually create sufficiency or even abundance. Uh, And if you challenge that limiting belief and realize that we have a choice, we have a choice as to which belief we choose, we choose, because who knows what reality is, but we, we can choose one way or the other. You know, it was Einstein, interestingly enough, who once said, you know, the most important uh, decision that any human being has to make is to decide whether or not the universe is friendly. (laughs) Now, why would he do that? Because he realized that, you know, he, his reasoning was that if we see the universe as being unfriendly, basically unfriendly, we're going to treat everyone as our enemy and we're going to react at the first provocation. And on a collective level with all these nuclear weapons, you know, <laughs> we're going to destroy life on Earth. But if we can choose to see uh, life in the universe as fundamentally friendly, then we might choose to see well maybe there's a chance to to see others as potential partners and see if we can cooperate with them and and preserve life on earth you know i like that the, the difference between a scarcity and an abundance mindset and it's so critical to success and particularly from a leadership perspective you can't be a transformative leader unless you're coming from a place of abundance because it's all about pouring your life into somebody else and being you know, being a servant and sacrificial and and, and selfless and um and I can't explain it, but it's so true. When you look at it that way, you actually get more than you ever could imagine to get if you have an abundance mindset. And the scarcity mindset just kind of keeps you either at a mediocre status quo or, or worse. It never never gets you out of the pit. Yeah, and, and basically it sets you up for the, you know, the following steps in the, in, in the method, which very quickly are to, you know, the, it, it sets you up to be able to stay in, in what athletes call the zone. You know, it's a place of peak performance and peak satisfaction. It also sets you up to, to respect the other person, even if at first they may not respect you, which I find is the key to turning uh, conflicts around, and uh, is that respect may be the cheapest concession we can make in a negotiation because it costs us very little. Right. You know, being in the Marines, how important respect is. Sure. And, and then that leads you to exactly what you were saying, to basically the principle of giving and receiving rather than just treating the negotiation as something take, 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 but as something where you can actually give, you can actually help address the needs of the other side, and they're much more likely to help you address yours. Mm, I love that. How did you come to the point of, you know, I love how you kind of flipped it on its head of taking your your plethora of negotiating experience and being a mediator and flipping it on to how we can use those same tactics on ourselves. Did you always know that or, or throughout your process, did you realize, you know what, this is all about helping ourselves? I mean, did, when did that kind of aha moment happen about flipping your tactics on its head and, and applying it to ourselves? Yeah, it was a kind of it's a good question. No, I didn't always know it. Uh, I think, you know, th- th- to me, I see this book, Getting to Yes with Yourself, as kind of the the f- missing first half of Getting to Yes. It's right. a prerequisite course I don't think I knew even existed when, uh, <laughs> right, right. when, when Roger and I first wrote Getting to Yes. But over the years, um, 
you know, it would dawn on me that we, we can be our own biggest opponents and there lie in, lies the opportunity that we can be our own best allies. Uh, and, uh, but I think, you know, some of the aha moments, they were both professional and personal, uh, on a professional level. I, I remember thinking a lot about this when I was engaged, I was, I was, uh, in, I was engaged as a mediator in the country of Venezuela between the president who was Hugo Chavez and his political opposition about 10, 12 years ago at a time of intense political unrest. And there were like a million people on the streets of Caracas demanding the resignation of President Chavez and about a million people supporting him. And there was a lot of fear that there would be a civil violence and, and a civil war even. And, uh, and I had a number of encounters with President Chavez. He was a kind of a volatile guy. And I had to watch myself very carefully. But I'll just give you one, one story, quick story which is uh, my colleague and I were invited to, to uh, the presidential palace to see him at 9 p.m. And we were waiting there in the presidential palace and waited. Midnight finally came and they ushered us in. And, and instead of him being alone, he had his entire cabinet arrayed behind him. Right. And, and he said, uh, Bill, uh, tell me about the situation. Uh, uh, what do you think? And I said, well, Mr. President, I think there's been some progress, he said. He got triggered. What do you mean progress? Are you blind? You're not seeing the dirty tricks the other side is up to, those traitors. And he proceeded to lean very close into my face and yell at me for about oh my gosh. 30 minutes in front of his entire cabinet there. And so, you know, you know, I felt, you know, wait a minute, that's not true. You know, if I you look inside my own mind, you know, you know, defending myself, wanting to defend myself. But then I was able to, you know go to the balcony, just observe my own thoughts and feelings and, you know, feeling like, wow, okay, two years of work now down the drain and all that. <laughs> and just observe it, let it go and listen to him instead of, you know, instead of reacting, reacting yeah, instead of getting reacting. to an argument because he was a man who was known, you know, to make eight hour speeches. He could have gone on forever, but what use, how would that serve my purpose to get into an argument with him? And sure enough, after half an hour, I saw, you know, just listening his shoulders sank a little bit and he said to me in a somewhat weary tone of voice, so Bill, what should I do? Oh my. <laughs> and that's the sound of a human mind opening. And so I said, well, Mr. President, you know, it's December, it's almost Christmas time. Why not declare a truce and just let everyone enjoy Christmas? And then in January, we can take it up again. He said, that's a great idea. And, uh, and his mood had completely shifted. How? Because I had gone to the balcony, because I'd gotten to yes with myself, because I had not reacted, I was able to turn the situation around with him. Mm -hmm. So it was moments like that that gave me a sense like, wow, if I can do this inner homework, uh, I can be much more effective in my work. I love that. What a great story, man. You've had, how did you get involved in mediation and negotiation? I mean, surely you weren't 11 years old and thinking, you know what, I'm going to be a mediator someday. I mean, how did you get into that? Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I grew up in the Cold War and I was, you know, I could never quite, I was always, could never quite get over the fact that we had all these nuclear yeah, weapons right? uh, aimed at us and ours aimed at, at the Russians. And what was that all about? So I, you know, I went into anthropology partly to try and understand what was going on here uh, with humanity and, right. and, you know, in human evolution. And, uh, and I, but I wanted to apply it to something practical. So I thought, you know, what if I wrote my thesis on, 
mentioning I was a fly on the wall, say, in the Middle East peace talks. What would you see as an anthropologist? What would you observe? And I sent it away to a professor. I was a, I was a graduate student in anthropology at Harvard and sent it away to a professor in the law school who was working on international conflict resolution. And, uh, and one January night, very, you know, I was up in my attic rented room and uh, I got a call at 10 p.m. and it said, this is Roger Fisher. Uh, I just read your paper about the Middle East and I've just sent it to the Assistant Secretary of State for the Middle East. Oh, my gosh. And I'd like you to come work with me. Wow. And so, you know, I was like thrilled that, wow, okay, something I could come up with might, might actually be practical. So I started working with Roger and, and then, you know, about the, the theory and, and, uh, of mediation and negotiation. But I wanted to get real practice. So I looked for opportunities and I had some opportunities to work as a mediator in a uh, very bitter coal mine strike in Kentucky. And um, so I... One thing led to another, so that's that's how I got in the field, and I've been in it ever since. That's been my passion, really, is helping people, organizations, and societies get to yes. Well, I find that just fascinating, especially you know as you're being triggered. You know, I was talking to my kids the other day about, and they have no recollection of when we talk about the Cold War. You know, my oldest is just getting ready to graduate high school, but I remember thinking back in grade school and in junior high in the early '80s late 70s, I remember being petrified of nuclear war. I mean, literally afraid of it. And um, I think a lot of people were. I think it was less so then, but, um, but remember that movie that came out in the 80s? Uh, what was it called? The, the Day After? The Day After. Remember that? Oh, we just remember Oh, I do. I remember it well. That. No, I, yeah, I, I spent many years actually working on a project called the Avoiding Nuclear War Project. I worked with the U.S. government, and I was actually a consultant to the White House at one point on how to reduce the risk of accidental nuclear war. Yeah, and we came close a couple of times too. Anybody that's ever studied it, you know. And, uh, yeah, we did. In fact, uh, you know, as part of this project, uh, I had the privilege of um, uh, on the 25th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis of sitting around a table in Moscow with the surviving participants, American and Soviet and Cuban, to kind of figure out what really happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we had Robert McNamara and George Bundy and wow, and just a whole bunch of people. And it, it was amazing to me just how, uh, again, how our own fears, our own misperceptions, our own mistakes can actually uh, lead to a kind of deadly cycle of escalation. Yeah, and it, and you're right. And how, how did, in fact, my daughter was even talking because they're studying the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like, how did we even get to that point? And I said, you know, it's interesting, you know, and um, you got to take into account, too, it, you know, still fresh off the heels of World War II and the Red Scare is still fresh in everybody's minds. And I don't know. It's just a, it's amazing to think about. I'm curious to think about, you know, the other thing too is those nukes, a lot of those nukes, the nukes are still there. And so it's funny how we never really talk about them anymore. It's true. It's true. I mean, it's a kind of a mindset. I mean, and, and they're, you know, they're still, I mean, it's not quite uh, as objectively dangerous as it was because we're not, you know, in a, in a you know life and death struggle with right. with the union, but but uh, yeah, it's I think that the jury is still out. I mean, I think we this is how I got interested in negotiation. Is I I figure you know there, there's a race going on between our ability as human beings, our technological genius at devising weapons that are increasingly destructive and increasingly accessible, and our moral social abilities to 
to resolve conflicts, to deal with each other, to deal with our differences in constructive ways. And that, that's where, you know, negotiation and leadership are so key. Yeah, I love that. Tell me more about the Abraham Path Initiative. When I was reading about that, I just I love it when people are actually doing something to shine the light on um, on leadership and, and diversity and showing the other cultures. So tell me about what prompted you. Yeah. Tell me what yeah. it is, first of all, and then tell me why you started it. Well, yeah, it was actually in the wake of uh, 9-11 and the Iraq War, and I could just see this huge kind of chasm of fear and separation and a lot of misunderstanding between, you know, the West and, you know, the Middle East, between the West and the global, you know, Muslim community. And, uh, and I thought, wow, uh, what could, how could we possibly come to understand each other a little bit better? And, uh, and, and I remembered, you know, the, because I'd been working, you know, I've been a student, and I'd, I'd done some work in the Middle East on the political negotiations over the years back in the, Late seventies and eighties and nineties, uh, even two thousand, and then. But I was I was thinking of what's a kind of out of the box kind of way approaching, and I thought of a simple idea, which was, you know, stories, because so much of that conflict's about identity and story. Why not go back to a story that actually reminds us of our connections, which is this ancient story of Abraham and uh, his journey, which is kind of the founding story of. Uh, of Christianity, of Judaism, of Islam, and uh, it's kind of the origin story for over half the planet. And why not give people a chance just to kind of walk in the footsteps, reenact that journey, as it were, follow that journey of Abraham, and in the course of that, meet each other and learn a little bit more of each other and see where that leads us. And people thought, that's the craziest idea. No one's going to go walk in the Middle East, right. you know. Yeah. And, but, you know, it's like, you know, when there's a danger, sometimes you need to move into the danger. Uh, I mean, as you know, as a, you know, being in the Marines and, you know, and, but so, uh, but anyway, so I decided to take it on as a kind of, oh, that's a negotiation job. Of how, how, do, how do we negotiate a path like, like the Appalachian Trail, but through the Middle East, uh, or like there's a, there's a, a pilgrimage path in Europe, very popular called Compostela. Yeah. And I, why, why not, you know, and I watched, you know, you know, what's the future of the Middle East? Maybe, you know, what one future is terrorism. That's that's our perception. And the other possibility is tourism. I mean, everybody would love to go to these places because, you know, we feel part of those stories. We know those stories from our own face and just from our own culture. You know, our, 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 that's the cradle of civilization. So over the last uh, six, seven years, uh, my colleagues and I, we studied the idea at Harvard for a while to study other paths, what works, what, you know, what borders would you have to cross? And then we started to explore. And now the, the path, uh, there's a website, actually, if you're interested, called abrahampath.org. But it's, a, it's an online guidebook to, you know, we're developing, our teams are developing the path, but we've got already, already over a thousand kilometers of path ready to walk in, um, in Jordan, in Turkey, in Palestine, the West Bank, and in Israel, uh, where you can actually uh, walk the path, stay in villagers' homes, get to know other people, and it's transformative for people who do it. And so, uh, and it's a, it's a kind of one thing I know is that however long those conflicts last, the path will outlast the conflicts because uh, paths can last for hundreds of years. Well, I appreciate the, um, the I love the vision. 
I don't know if I would. I'm a, I, I, maybe I could get the courage to do that someday. I'm sure it would be a transformative experience. Is how do you get well, past the, uh, you know, some of those barriers? Yeah, I know there's a big barrier of fear, but the, the truth is actually the parts of the path where we walk are uh, are safer than walking. I mean, objectively, again, it's, you have to face your subjective fear, but objectively, they're safer than uh, walking down the streets of a big metropolitan city. Right, and. Uh, in fact, I'm headed there uh, just in a, in, a, in, a, in a few weeks to, to, to walk part of the path in, uh, in that region. So, Well, I love how you at least, you know, people like yourself, I really love having people on the show that are shining a light in so many different areas, and, and um, you're certainly doing it. And I wouldn't even, never would have thought of negotiations, of, like I said, flipping it on the head and helping to improve ourselves, which we're all about here on the show. And so I, I just learned so much from this, and I'm excited to dive into your book even more. As we get close to the end of the conversation, I always like to ask all of my guests, like if you had the ultimate night for the f- most fantastic dinner party you've ever had, and you can invite five people alive or dead, who would those people be? Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's a good one. Uh, well, I know the first one who popped to my mind was actually Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, yeah. uh, another one is uh, Abraham. <laughs> yeah. Another one is Einstein. Uh, and uh, uh, who else? Um, I would like to meet um, someone like... Uh, who else? Mother Teresa. Oh, <laughs> she would be, one, yeah. I'd love to have a conversation with her and understand a little more. And uh, and then, uh, who else? Uh, I would say um, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh, good choice. <laughs> so I like you. I hope I can come. This is a, a heavy-hitting guest a list, guest list. This is a – that would be – an interesting night for sure. You know, people pick Gandhi a lot. You know, that's it's, what's interesting. Gandhi's come up. Oh, he might be up there. Lincoln is up there a lot and Gandhi is up there a lot. They have to be the top two when I ask this question. Yeah. Oh, Lincoln would be great. And let me, if, if I have a moment, can I tell you one story about Lincoln to me sure. that illustrates this whole thing? Yeah. Which is uh, Lincoln uh, in the waning months of the Civil War, as a leader, he was thinking about how does he, how do we bind the wounds of yeah. the nation and, and, and heal. And he was talking sympathetically about the South when a uh, patriot in the audience, a Yankee patriot, took him to task and said, Mr. President, how dare you speak kindly of our enemies when you ought to be thinking of destroying them? And Lincoln thought about it for a moment and he said, Madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I turn them into my friends? Uh, beautiful. That's a reframe. And that's based... Lincoln did a lot of work inside himself. He was a master at getting to yes with himself that made it possible for him to get to yes with others. Amazing. Well, guys, where can people find you and get in touch with you? They can find me uh, on my, through my website. It's probably the best way. It's just my name, William Uri, U-R-Y.com. And, uh, and they can find the book pretty much anywhere on Amazon or, uh, on the web or in bookstores. So, uh, and I just want to wish all your listeners much, much success in getting to yes with yourself and getting to yes with others as well. I love it. Getting yes to yourself was the book. I'll have links to his website and the book. And I highly encourage everybody to go out there. It's a very popular Ted talk, the walk from no to yes. William, 
uh, you're one of the great ones out there. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been my pleasure, Richard. I hope, I hope we get a chance to meet in person someday. Yeah, for sure. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.